Deadwood Soundwell. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Welcome to Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. We don't have Brandon today. We've been having some difficulties I don't really want to get into, but uh, it's totally on my end. And so Aaron Donaldson was nice enough to step in. He is the co-producer of Redwood Sound Lab. So hello, Aaron. That's the first time I've ever been introduced that way. Biggs, thank you. Of all your prestigious titles. Yeah, co-host of Alien Movie Project, big fan of that show we're going to bring back here on the network, and um, currently working on The Real War Project with Charles Horgan, and that's what you brought me on to talk about today, right? Yeah, I am a big fan of your podcast, even though I do spot editing. I actually talked about this on a previous episode, just like the very little I edit, and sometimes your guys' episodes were so long, I would have to put it up before I actually like heard the whole thing, mm-hmm. and uh, that hasn't happened lately because I've kind of changed my schedule. I do hear the whole thing when I put it up now. Nice. I am a really really big fan. I know you've been recording ahead and I tend to listen week to week. Part of that is by design because occasionally I talk about it on other podcasts and I don't want to like mention something you guys haven't hit yet and create confusion if somebody goes looking for it. Mm -hmm. How did you start this? Like what was the kernel of the idea here? In 2015 is when Kate and I did the Alien Movie Project is when we started that. And that was me trying to intersect public communication, which is kind of just like the sharing of knowledge to the public. I'm a critical rhetorician. I'm a teacher. I'm a debate coach. And I want to create content that other people can access, listen to, and hopefully learn some of the stuff that I do professionally without having to get behind the paywall that is tuition. And so podcasting is a great platform for that. And I'm not the only person that knows that. There's a lot of academics just like everybody else out there making podcasts for this very reason. And we had a really great run with that show. We still really want to finish. We have a toddler and that makes synchronizing our schedules very difficult. And that's fundamental for a podcast. So we want to do 10 or 15 more episodes of that show, but it's currently on hold. As a direct extension to that, that shows for me about studying what uh, is called alienhood rhetoric, which is a very particular kind of otherness discourse. Anytime you're talking about other people in particular or in general, we call that otherness. You're making, crafting, maintaining otherness. Alienhood is a very specific kind. There's monstrosity. We could talk about androids. Uh, Aliens are very specific, pretty important. We did like 90 episodes on that. We hit pause because of the, the, the toddler. A direct extension to that, the inverse of alienhood rhetoric, who is describing the alien in cinema? This person called the cis, het, white settler patriarch. And that dude is living at the heart of pretty much every war movie that America makes, for sure. And weirdly worldwide, we see this character, even though he does not look the white part necessarily, the characteristics of this identity are shared all over the place. And I wanted to, to study war culture broadly, gun culture in particular. And this cishet white settler patriarch as much as I could. My buddy Charles Horgan and I go way back to high school. We have a shared interest in movies. He was, he says, the second person wounded in Operation Iraqi Freedom. His Humvee was blown up when he was the very tip of the spear uh, going in. Uh, You can find his picture 
appear in major newspapers. I was at a debate tournament when he showed up on the front page of major newspapers as one of the first Purple Heart recipients from that war. He's a huge cinephile. He's always been a huge cinephile. He is individually, hopefully not speaking too much for him. He almost came on. He was so close and we both want to come on the show at some point. But he is also interested in disrupting war culture. I am a pacifist. He says generally he believes in pacifism. Don't want to overstep my bounds there and, you know, recruit him for things he's not ready to sign (laughs) up for. But maybe he is, you know, I don't know. Anyway, the point is podcasts are a great way to share knowledge. He and I are positioned to do a particular kind of analysis. There's a great many shows, yours included, that talk about media from all sorts of perspectives. This is ours. We're just taking a movie a week. And part of it, too, is I'm I'm studying movies themselves. I need to watch the movie with other people and talk about our reactions to the movie. That's part of how you study something. Every week I go looking for peer-reviewed research on whatever movie it is so it keeps me accountable. Cutting cards, we say in debate. I have piles of research now. The Alien Movie Project hopefully will be a book. Fingers crossed. October is when I have to send in a draft. That's a long answer to your question, Biggs, but just chewing time. So No, no, that is the easiest kind of answer that I love because it involves very little editing. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm always a fan of that. <laughs> I can feel that in my bones. Bix. Yeah, we are both editors who do not like to edit, but it's it comes with the territory, <laughs> which is ironic that we're producers. <laughs> yeah, I, I hate every part of writing. There's a saying, I love having written, but I hate writing. Yeah. I don't like my writing. I don't like having written. I don't like writing. I don't like any of that. I like having edited. When I listen to things I've edited and I know the little things, one of our other co-hosts, Eli Leonard, he is an editor and he said, I think everyone's familiar with this term, the the last cut of the movie is in the editing. The last like part of the, this is where you reframe, you shoot the movie again in many ways and, and when you edit it. And when you can listen to stuff you've edited, I can really hear those moments that I really like and that I wanted to see if I can get them to work. And that's cool. But the process is exhausting. Clicky, 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 clicky. If anybody's not very sure how much editing changes a thing, I will give you an experiment that will take about 10 hours. But if you're really dedicated to it, (laughs) a short little tiny little. uh... (laughs) Yeah, but this is very real. And I think it's going to tie right into your podcast and my other podcast, which is we talked about Apocalypse Now. And Mm -hmm. in my episode, we talked about the different cuts of it. And Coppola has put forward his third cut, the final cut. Before that, he had Redux, and before that, he had the theatrical cut. But Mm -hmm. we talked about the assembly cut. Now, the assembly cut is not official, but it's something they do with every movie. They take every scene. Basically, at the time, they would kind of put it in a line because it would be on strips. But now, obviously, they do it digitally. And then they take all the scenes that they think they're going to do. And those scenes, for example, would feature a cutaway shot where you see a boat floating down the river to establish where you're at, right? Now, that scene is maybe, at best, two seconds in the movie. You know, you're not going to spend very much time seeing that boat. They're just trying to orient you with where you are. But when you film that, you start while the boat's at the top of the frame, right? And, like, all the way to the bottom of the frame because you're not sure exactly what part you're going to use. So that is, like, three minutes long. So I challenge you, the assembly cut is out there. If you know how to work torrent sites, you could find it. Watch the entire assembly cut and then try and hold to the opinion that editing doesn't matter because it absolutely (laughs) does. It turns that movie from an hour and a half cut for the theatrical one or like I think three and a half for the redux, like three hours Mm -hmm. for the final cut. From a seven and a half hour assembly cut, like editing really, truly matters. And what you take out really, truly matters, too. In criticism, 
we really emphasize that media is a piece of property. I refer to movies as pieces of real estate. And I always say when you see the phrase opens on in a screenplay, then we're talking about primo real estate. This is ocean, literally oceanfront property. It's the first thing we're going to see in the movie. Writers and directors and editors, watch any documentary, will fight with each other forever about what comes after opens on. It is so important in so many ways, as you say, establishing things, um, not just like where you are, but also how we feel about where we are. And there's so many other things and, and, and framing the narrative of the movie weirdly you will find that people will have opens on in a kind of visual metaphoric space that um, foreshadows the conclusion of the movie. This is pretty straightforward filmmaking. If you can do that, you're you're doing the basics, right? Like, yeah. And it's so hard to come to an agreement on what that final project is going to be. And when it comes to real estate, there's a lot of interested parties and there's a lot of people that are going to bicker about what to put where. And yeah, having, you know, very limited editing knowledge before and now having edited all of the episodes um you and our good friend matthew campbell did all of the editing for the alien movie project i just sent you piles of nonsense and you made the <laughs> magic happen and now that i am actually trying to you know carry uh, the load here i can really appreciate and respect the kind of narrative components that you add the sonic we talk a lot about the affective politics of things the the way it sounds right and it's it's a short quick example but just go looking for the youtube videos that's like yakety sacks over like dreary scenes in movies. Yeah, it's like the opening of Saving Private Ryan with Yakety Sacks. And that's a very basic example of where the editor can just completely take the wagon off the road down the trench into a fucking gully if they want. Very famously Star Wars, which I'm pretty sure you've covered but yes, hasn't did. come out yet right so yeah not yet yeah but we we'll, we'll, we'll tell people we talked about that one why not who cares yeah a little sneak peek at the show here <laughs> so star wars very famously when coppola was seeing it and brian de palma and martin scorsese and spielberg like all tight friends with george lucas they thought it was a mess. Spielberg was the only one who could see through it and be like, this is a hit. Everybody else was like, this doesn't work at all. But it was yeah. also very crucially because he did not have the soundtrack in there yet. Like, And George Lucas himself, I mean, famously was not happy with his first cut of A New Hope. And once you throw in that John Williams score, man, it just Amazing. makes the movie. I mean, that hero horn, for example, yeah. when you see him out in Tatooine, it always gives me goosebumps because that piece of music, I don't even need visuals with it. But I always associate it with the movie, just like how he feels like everything's going on a million miles away from him and he'll never see anything. And just that angst you feel as a teenager, you just feel feel it in that music you know and mm -hmm. it it definitely suggests a lot to a movie yeah have you addressed that very much in the real war project i i've heard a little bit on the music a little bit you know we get more into it later on it's funny because you know, you're, you're really bringing up a lot of stuff that we're touching on. So here's basically what we do at the Real War Project. We do batches of movies. Charles, the cinephile, picks three movies to put in a batch. And then we watch those movies and then we talk about the batch. And then we do another batch. So the first batch, which is out, we called Formative Movies. Paths of Glory is the first war movie he ever saw. Glory was the first war movie I ever saw. Biggs, what's the first war movie you ever saw? Quickest answer, go. Uh, I guess it would have to be Star Wars. <laughs> Okay, yeah, that's a good answer. It's a good answer. And then we did uh, The Big Parade, which was the top grossing silent film of all time, 1925, the first, quote, realistic war movie. 
movie. Um, the first movie with huge support from the United States Department of Defense, and you see it all over the place in that movie. And then the next batch, we watch Doctor Strangelove, Failsafe, and Strategic Air Command. So the first batch was like formative movies. The second batch is about nuclear annihilation. The third batch is Afghanistan, The Man Who Would Be King, The Beast of War, Lone Survivor. I'll just give it away because I don't really care about spoilers. Podcasting time is inevitable. It goes forever. Right now, the next batch, that the one this week, is going to be The Dam Busters from 1955. And the next movie after that is The Hidden Fortress. Ready? Dam Busters, The Hidden Fortress. Oh, so this is a Star Wars theme, isn't it? And at the end of The Hidden Fortress, Charles tells me the next movie we're watching and he says Star Wars. And in my voice, you hear me go, we are? <gasps> we're watching Star Wars. I got so excited. I was like, ah, we're watching Star Wars. And so that, that batch, the, the batch episode there is called Star Wars Culture. And it speaks directly to what you're talking about, what we're talking about in terms of how editors carry forth conversations um, and how George Lucas basically fetishizes everything in these movies in all of these wild ways to turn it into what we called cotton candy war movies. We're just going to eat them constantly and just watch war. And the only politic is use the force and win the war. That's it. That's all we're going to care about in those shows. And so in that batch, you see that editing conversation emerge at the end of Dan Busters. It is the, the Battle of Yavin. It's the attack yep. on the Death Star. You get it? And, and we're not the first people to say this, but if you listen to the episodes, you can hear the conversation emerging through the movies and the most recent batch that we did the one that's several weeks away from coming out apocalypse now full metal jacket and then jarhead interesting because jarhead is informed by the first two for sure they talk about them all the time jarhead pulls explicitly the flight of the valkyries scene from apocalypse now which a lot of movies obviously do it also pulls multiple quotes from the the movie Full Metal Jacket. And so that, that batch was Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, and then Jarhead. So it pulls specific scenes, specific quotes, but unlike Star Wars, which just fetishizes the stuff that it lifts, Jarhead lifts these things in deeply reflective ways, in deeply ironic ways, in ways that point the finger at war culture. And an article I found says white masculinity in particular, not centering white masculinity, but I love this argument from an article I found. It says there's a difference between being visible and being looked at. And Sam Mendes makes white masculinity looked at. And it doesn't like that. It's supposed to be hidden. <laughs> and visibility yeah. is what we expect. We expect to be the hero, right? So visibility is Luke Skywalker. Looked at is Swafford, the character in Jarhead. And in each case, it echoes musically what we are talking about. The music of Thomas Newman is the name I went looking for. Thomas Newman and Sam Mendes work together on American Beauty. They work together on Jarhead. And in each case, the music is so ironic. It's so ironic. There's a Thomas Newman song called like Full Chemical Gear, which you think should sound bad. And it's like a groovy little like, oh man, it sounds great. It feels great. So Luke gets a hero horn. And like you said, that thing chills me to the bone. And when I hear it, I feel like a little white boy looking at the stars and wanting to go to war and be the hero and all this. And in this instance, Newman's music and Mendy's winking in his edits and in his writing just totally changed the conversation. And so what's really cool is there's a power politic here. Editing is very much about power. Obviously, it's about power. We're, we're casting power on characters. We're making protagonists as opposed to antagonists. That's a big power politic. And it's what's fun about our show, we hope, is that you can drop in to listen to any episode. 
and you're going to learn some stuff. Yeah. But if you want to get like episodic with it, each batch teaches us something different. And across batches, we have similar lessons, but the, they, they change in terms of what we learn. What editing, lifting from prior content brings to the conversation. We had a great conversation in batch four, Star Wars culture with the Dan Busters Hidden Fortress Star Wars. And we return to it in a very, very different way, going a very different direction in batch six, Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, and Jarhead. So, so actually, I believe if, if that's batch four, Dam Buster should be on right now. Like as this episode drops, that episode should drop as well. So if you're really, truly interested in Star Wars, it's really good to know about what they're referencing too. I covered Yojimbo and I covered Hidden Fortress out of my love of Star Wars. I also now love Akira Kurosawa as a result. But like yeah. Hidden Fortress, it's nuts how much he lifted from that. Because for as much as we're talking about these other movies, Hidden Fortress, holy crap, he cribbed the whole story from it. Like yeah. it's the whole story. What was really cool to me was um, when we started watching the Dam Busters, I didn't know that we were doing a Star Wars batch. I didn't know we would watch Star Wars. But when I was researching that movie, you can't avoid it. Everything you read about that movie says, number one, there is a dog named the N-word in that movie. And they say it a bunch. And oh my God, it's a hot piece of trash. Ugh. And number two, this is one of the movies that inspired Star Wars, including the front of the Millennium Falcon, which is one of my favorite pieces of science fiction iconography in the world. I love the Millennium Falcon. It's not a military ship. It's a cargo ship made of military and race car parts. But anyway. And it's importantly trash as well as awesome, right? Like right. everybody's yeah. like, what a bucket of bolts. It's falling apart. That hyperdrive doesn't work. But the music is like, mm, we love this ship. <laughs> It's so good. It's so smart. And that's another good example if you listen. So the, the, the hero horn, I'm going to get back to Dan Busters in a second, but the hero horn with Luke Skywalker, we would say most people know that. Yeah. But but dial up the moment when we see the Millennium Falcon for the first time in A New Hope and listen to what John Williams does with the music. And Luke Skywalker says, what a, bu what a bucket of bolts or whatever. And the music says exactly the opposite, but it does it really subtly. It's not with a harmony or anything. It's more just a chord structure that is evocative of the theme, but that lifts the whole ship into the stratosphere in terms of how badass it is <laughs> anyway and it makes you agree with han solo that it's awesome right like that's kind of the point exactly right the music sides with han solo yeah and that's how editing and power works in movies i love it um anyway with the damn busters i'm like okay so this informs star wars but then when i watched the end the whole third act they literally have exact lines like how many guns read to i think there's 10 guns five on the surface five on the tower i heard that damn busters and almost lost my mind because i'm like oh my god star wars burned that into my brain this happened way before that the next one when the um hidden fortress starts you said you can see he cribbed the whole story that movie starts and in 30 seconds you see these two people walking down a road arguing and i'm like oh my god it is r2d2 and c3po look at them go yep they're 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 speaking japanese and they're definitely saying stuff r2 and c3po would never say to each other charles and i had a good little maybe that's what r2 is saying and that's why they censor him <laughs> yeah. so much this is me and kate from the alien movie project saying r2 just has a mouth like a sailor and he is speaking english they just can't air any of it no, yeah. not a word <laughs> it's all just he's just that salty anyway you see it you literally see it it is visible in front of your eyes but it's different and at the end of the Star Wars batch, we have a great conversation comparing Princess Yuki and Princess Leia and comparing the message at the end of the Hidden Fortress, which is a rejection of war. Hidden Fortress is one of the only movies Charles points out that we have watched that is not celebrating death and at the end as a triumph. They reject that yep. specifically. And it is because Yuki calls for mercy 
And that's what leads the character that we think from Hidden Fortress that turns into Darth Vader. That dude joins the rebellion at the end of Hidden Fortress. And Lucas launches the platform the completely other way in the other movie. It's so interesting, not only how explicit it is, but also how small positional shifts will carry forth things like racism, will carry forth um, other kinds of legacies of oppression, but that will also change the story in really meaningful ways. It's fascinating. Comparing Yuki and Leia is amazing because Yuki gets mentioned at like seven minutes, which is pretty good for 50 standards for a woman character. Yeah. When we first see her, it's a real power shot. We're looking up at her. She is like standing. The music is like, this woman is a badass. Yeah. She's looking down on all of them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a bunch of terrible rape culture in that movie and she is victimized by it and the movie wants us to wink on by it. So obviously it's an artifact of the era, not the 50s. It's, I guess it is 58. So anyway, but Yuki has a lot of power, a lot of presence, a lot of privilege, but she comes pretty late. With Star Wars, what's fascinating, there's so much I could say about Leia. I'm trying to write a book chapter about her right now. The first time we see her, she is shouting down Darth Vader. She is literally shouting down Darth Vader. This is the first thing we see. And Luke Skywalker is down on this little planet whining about droids. She's getting blasted in a ship running away from a major battle, shouting down the guy that captures her, thrown into jail, tortured, sees her planet explode. She's talking shit to his superior as well, right? Because at this point, Grand Moff Tarkin is his boss. And then she's also says something about Vader's leash or something. She is talking truth to power. Her rescuers show up. They're completely incompetent. It is only because of her creativity that they do not all get either recaptured or killed. So she rescues her rescuers. The scene that's fascinating to me is when she throws the blanket over Luke Skywalker and says, they're their farm boy. He just met Ben Kenobi and she's had a way worse day. Behold the power of editing, centering the feelings of experiences of men at the expense of women's trauma. Uh, Hollywood is full of this. And that scene for me is a prime example of it. So Leia comes off at the beginning as a very empowered character. And then as soon as we center down towards Luke Skywalker, right? Like she is just marginalized. She becomes a hologram. She gets to the sideline. She gets to sit there and listen to the voices on the radio, which is another direct rip from the damn busters, the people pacing around, listening to the voices while the pilots talk to each other, doing their runs. Just amazing editing moment that plays almost exactly the same, except with droids and Princess Leia compared to a bunch of British generals and a plucky boffin scientist. Her character takes a very weird turn. She's deeply empowered in the very moments of beginning moments of that movie and then explicitly marginalized and she gives him a medal and that's all she does at the end of the movie. Yeah. Yuki shows up less, does less, is explicitly the target of rape culture and all of this other stuff, um, but has a direct impact on where the movie goes at the end. It is her decision making and in fact her speech making that changes the whole tide at the end of that movie. She is the most important character in that movie. You can't escape it. She's the reason why the story's happening. She's the one that makes the major decisions for the resolution of the story. You can't pull her out of that movie and make it work. Unfortunately, you can pull Leia out of Star Wars and make it work. I think that there's a lot of people that would say you can and that you can't. And I think that that's a good example of what we say where it's like, is sexism, is all this stuff getting better or worse? Critics are going to say, we don't know. It's just changing. The, The vocabulary is changing. And Leia is a pretty important character and she takes up way more like Yuki is muted literally on purpose for most of that movie. She literally cannot speak. So you want to talk about silencing women in film. We will look at her, but she can't say anything. You get it as a point of like strategic necessity. Otherwise, some terrible things happen. So it's like, you know, Leia is it's complex. We talk about complexity. We we don't always want to say it's getting worse. It's getting better. That's too simplistic. You get it. It's more just look at 
at all of these things we can say and that we can't say about how it changes. And then think about the role that someone like George Lucas plays in informing the imagination of generations of children, generations, plural, of children. Like Leia is still doing stuff today. And in our episode, we have a great conversation about how Carrie Fisher is such an important person to have embodied that role and and the art she took over her career and the ways that she kind of modeled the, the performer standing up to the narrative and also embracing the narrative and loving the narrative. You get it? Like she told off Princess Leia and she was Princess Leia. She did both of those things. Yeah. So it's just really cool. And I'd never looked at movies this way before. And that's that's the whole point with criticism is you put a critical hat on it. You're going to get methodical. You're going to get pedagogical. The method is how. The pedagogy is why. How are we looking and why are we looking? And that will change your viewing fundamentally. And um, it, it's fun to do that. I want to say personally too, listening to your podcast with this as well as the Alien Movie Project, I learned so much about movies. It's insane. And I have a lot of dialogue with people outside of podcasts who are just like, how the fuck do you know so much about movies? And I mean, there's a lot of answers to that, but one of them is through listening to your show and editing your show. So I'd have to hear it twice often, sometimes three times to try and get it right. But I would remember a lot of the terminology you threw at me. And then like hearing that once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know, like a lot of the sexism and racism and things like that. And so like movies are so inherently political and we try and look at them like they're not a lot of the time, but they always are. They always have a point of view. And so you gave me a way to really talk about that, that I appreciate because I always wanted to talk about politics, but just couldn't find a way in with podcasting. Like we try it and it would kind of derail things a lot. And after listening to your show, I knew exactly Mm -hmm. how, because you're seeing images that are expressing certain things. And so it's natural to talk about that because what are you going to do otherwise? You're just ignoring it or you're mindlessly taking in the message and then it's affecting you whether you realize it or not. So why not put it in the light and examine it, you know? Bell Hooks just died uh, recently. And what I'm telling people is that Bell Hooks does not die. She's immortal. Gloria Watkins unfortunately passed away. And she was what I kept telling students right up until this last year, the most significant living cultural critic on the planet. And I will. I will go so far as to compare her to all of the white theorists you've ever heard that matter. I've told people she's kind of Newtonian in what she does with cultural criticism. And what her argument, and she's not the only one making it, but there's a lot of what she does in in particular that that you're speaking to that I want to really credit her for, is that if you can name power. That's the first thing we do is articulate power. The critic will name it. We'll call it white supremacy, or we will call it toxic masculinity, and we'll find a shape that everyone sees, and we'll find the the order and the operation of that shape, even if it changes in terms of the language over all of these different spaces. We can still see centering white men, centering power, centering all this kind of stuff. So we will name it. Once we have named it, that demystifies it right away. Like you said, you just said, people, once we learn that word, then we can see it. And, and Bell Hooks calls that a critical consciousness. This is Mark this is hooks, this is criticism. Once we have applied that word to our own experience, we are now empowered to act on how we feel about that in a new way. And cinema and music in um, her book, she has an incredible book called um, Real to Real. The Real War Project is R-E-E-L War Project. Her book, R-E-E-L to R-E-A-L, deeply informing the name of our podcast. This book, Real to Real, in the intro, makes a really great argument about how 
if you are someone like Spike Lee that just wants to deny that politics are part of your cinema, then you cannot ever claim to know anything about them because it's always political. She uses the term pedagogical. Pedagogy is about what we learn and why we learn it. And when we look back at our first conversation about opens on, they want it. It's like, we're going to teach people something. It's the whole point. We're teaching a lesson. We're teaching a lot of lessons. Who matters? Who doesn't? How do we feel? You get these are lessons. And it's not the same as like what you get on my syllabus when I'm like, you know, Bell Hooks's name is Gloria Watkins and she was born in this day and she's written this book. That's a lesson plan. Right. Movies have a lesson plan, but you don't know it. You don't know it. You just hear the song. You, 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 and even the creator is, is, is methodical, has priorities about what they want. And so that is a question of what she calls pedagogy. And so she is exceptional because a lot of people look at this kind of criticism of oh, feminists are so angry. If you read Bell Hooks, there's no anger there at all. She's like, I love Quentin Tarantino. I love Spike Lee. These people make incredible art and I cannot stop watching it. This is not about telling people not to make art or not to like these people. Cancel culture is a boogeyman that is for the worst case scenario. If we cancel it, it is because it is violent. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, that's the only time we ever get there. And in every other time, what she wants us to do is just describe it so that the, the future creators and audiences can be more informed about what they want to do with it. And unfortunately, people get alienated from this vocabulary because they call it ivory tower. And part of me wants to emphasize you need to pay people to explain it to you because that's hard. What I do is a kind of labor and there's not a lot of people on the planet that can do it with the exact same kind of capabilities that I can that you earn through graduate school and stuff like that. But Bell Hooks says you cannot depend on the academy. If it is not accessible, it is not revolutionary. If it is not coming from a place of pure lived experience, it's really not even knowledge. It's not even knowledge. And something I really want to end on this rant I'm going on here about how amazing Bell Hooks is and also how she's speaking to what you're describing is that you've been doing this for a long time you're you're about to do your thousandth episode or you did your thousandth episode uh, in far, in terms of production yeah that yeah. was a couple months ago <laughs> just really congratulations on that and, and when people like they're like how do you know so much about movies and stuff like that okay i don't know but i'm pretty sure it never went to like grad school to do this but you did you you cut cards you watch content and you do it with a methodical purpose and it is within a community of people and um you know there are important differences between that kind of research because that's what that is and the, the kind that gets you a PhD or whatever. But they're not so much in terms of who knows stuff. You get it? And what Bell Hooks would say is someone like you who has lived in and watched so much more of this content from a much more methodical position than even I ever had, you have as much to offer, in many, if not perhaps more, to bring to the table than, than even I can sitting here telling you who she was and what her book was all about and all that. You get it? I don't know that either, though. And that's helpful. Right. Well, but see, her point is that that's how knowledge works. And what we need is a kind of synthesis of that. We need people to respect the academic theory construction, but we can never neglect that other side of the, the, the coin. You get a lot of people make fun of folks with podcasts and movie podcasts. And I'm like, never, ever let anyone shame you for your education. <laughs> and a podcast is a kind of pedagogy. Yeah. And um, I think that, you know, I really do. I want to acknowledge your contribution to both of these projects that I'm talking about, the Alien Movie Project and the Real War Project. And also just the work that you do and all the other shows that you participate in and that you construct, because even if it is not capital C critical, a la the Academy and that whole, uh, you know, terminology 
construction, it meets the test of criticality in every sense in terms of what we do. And it informs people. And, you know, kind of like you, there's so many things to listen to and to do. I wish I could listen to every episode of your show, but every time I listen to it, I learn stuff. And if you listen to um, the Hidden Fortress episode, um, the Dam Busters episode, that whole batch, you're going to hear us describing our good friend Biggs at the Not Safer Network (laughs) and uh, Redwood Sound Labs. Well, thank you. I'm I'm really looking forward to listening to that now because I get an extra charge when I hear my name. Yeah, yeah, there's a few little little drops in there. And, oh, I wanted to add, Charles and I were just talking about this. We got to bring you on for an episode at some point. You just have to work with him to pick a war movie. Yeah, 100%. He picks the movies. And if you two pick a war movie together, he'll put it in a batch and we'd love to have you on because the episodes we did on uh, the Alien Movie Project were really fun. I'll be honest. I would almost, I mean, if you guys want me to to pick, I will, but I would almost prefer that he pick and bring me in because like- Oh, cool. So I've kind of worked in this thing. In particular, A Cosmic Void is a good example. So Jeremiah picks, you know, a good percentage of the movie. When we have a guest on, almost always, not always, like the last two episodes with guests are not a good example because I picked those. But typically when we have a guest, they pick the movie. But I like that better because it exposes me to stuff I might not watch otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. how you get better with movies is you watch everything. Mm -hmm. I don't do a great job of watching stuff I don't want to watch unless I have to watch it, which like yeah. Brett podcast, which is Correct. perfect. It's a perfect <laughs> way to watch it because I'm not going to just watch it. I'm going to watch it closely and I'm going to take notes and I'm mm-hmm. going to research. And so it, it's almost better, but I'll also pick if you guys want me to as well. well. <laughs> I mean, we brought you on the Alien Movie Project for our episode on Flash Gordon. I yeah. can't remember what episode that was, but um, it was season two, I think. We recorded it at my parents' place because we were moving. I will remember that forever. Oh, it was <laughs> fun. <laughs> it was. And, and that's a good example where it's like, here's a place where you know quite a bit about it. I don't know anything about it. I have stuff to say always, but I also want someone that is in the the thicket, you know, and, yeah, and can fair. bring this stuff up. So it, and, and what you're right, like Charles picks really cool movies. He and Eli are going to do a side project that we're going to hopefully put on Patreon called Dirt Maps. Every uh, war movie has the dirt map or in the Red Dawn, it's a grill map where they're just pointing at things with sticks and being like, we could go here and do that. Oh, let's do this. And so that that's he and Eli being like, here are the future batches. And the only rule is I can't listen to dirt maps until we've watched the movies about them so that I'm like permanently clueless. And I'm doing other things. I have two interviews coming up. I have an interview with two professors that I cannot wait to put on the show. And when I, we put them on, I'll talk about them by name. But, um, I, you know, you're right. I would never watch most of these movies if it weren't for this show. And Dan Busters is, is an exceptional example. I definitely would never watch that movie unless it was like, let's figure this out. And what's really amazing about that movie in particular, it's based on an actual mission. This is something that uh, most war movies have in common. It's something that actually happened. This mission was really important. It was a huge moment. It was very risky. And in our episode, we talked about how the pilots that climbed up into those planes on that night to run that mission were not only doing something very significant for the war effort that could potentially kill them, huge stakes. They're also, in a way, creating Star Wars. Yeah. And that's so weird to think that, that that mission will happen. And that the public will latch on to that mission and we will make a movie of that mission that will reflect that mission. And then a little boy named George Lucas is going to watch that movie and then they're going to get so wrapped up on this cupola image and they're going to want that in their spaceship. You get it? And it's just like that is the power and that creates a theme park. It creates a theme park where you and your family join the rebellion or if you like the dark side so that who cares just, you know, use the force and win the wars plural they're never gonna stop you know it's 
amazing that, that that had such strategic consequence for that war. But there's part of me that's like the cultural context may even be bigger. Yeah. It may even be bigger. And that makes me look at even goofy old war movies that I never would have watched with a totally new light because Lucas informed, I said, this is pedagogy, generations of boys and men and also women and girls, you know? And while we are seeing a dispersion of the power of individual studios and filmmakers now, because there's just so much access to create and stream content, it's still true. Like, it's still true. The major characters, the major actors, the major directors, the major producers, the major platforms have tremendous influence in what they teach us. And if we don't know what they're co- where they're coming from, then we only learn so much of that. I don't know. It's wild. So I wanted to to get out on one last thought here because your co-host wasn't able to join but charles mm-hmm. is very very funny and yes. uh, he had a podcast that was very short-lived but on my old network called the charles r horror show and he is just a funny dude it's kind of amazing to me hearing him bounce off of you because he can hang with you intellectually i feel like but then also he is so fucking funny he just yeah. makes me laugh he loves improv he loves it and he's i think good at it i think he's very good at it and um he has a grim and dark sense of humor that you see in that show and he and i in high school would do this thing where we would never make movies because that was exhausting but we would make all of these trailers and and we would just <laughs> kick ideas back and forth until we had a trailer and then we'd make the trailer and then we'd be like there we go you know, we had one called Future Soldier from the Past, which was a sci-fi soldier fighting the last gasps of a battle against these evil creatures. Goes back to ancient Scotland to find his great, 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 great grandfather, Kale McGinty, and they will together destroy the evil before it even begins. And it's kind of weirdly like Tomorrow War in a lot of ways. And we're like, ah, weird. And that movie had all of these stupid, ridiculous moments that in hindsight are very critical. We did The Soldier and the Vampire which is one of my absolute favorites. It's a cop drama starring a, a World War II GI and an 18th century vampire fighting crime in the streets of Chicago. Here comes Charles's brilliance, the slogan, one of them is prepared to die for their country. The other one is already dead. Soldier and the vampire. It's like, it is so stupid, but it came from us going trick-or-treating together. He was a GI and I was a vampire and we're like, let's make this a cop drama. So we you get it? And we if, made the if trailer. If I'm being honest, it. it sounds like a trauma team films. It really it, does. I want this badly. I want this very badly. It makes me think of next or interdimensional cable or whatever it is on Rick and Morty. You get yes. it. It's like, this is kind of like what Charles and I would do. And, you know, I, I don't know that I would ever be any good at improv. I'm that asshole that thinks he would be good at it, but has never gone to the classes and so should go nowhere near a stage. Um, but I think it's fun. And he is really, you know, literally trained, but also just very passionate about it. And again, it really speaks to how his critical angle comes from a different method than mine. And I think it's true. He is very interested in the intellectual stuff. He, If you listen to our show, we fight most of the time. <laughs> a lot of the time yeah. he's like pushing back on the theory. So, but he, he does, he hangs with it and he wants to hear about it and he listens to it and he applies it. He brings it up in later episodes. I tell people don't run away from big words, just enjoy them. Yeah. This is to say, I think sometimes people worry that like, if it's a podcast, where you're going to learn something that it's not going to be enjoyable. But mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get across here is like, it is very enjoyable. It's very much fun. You guys like talk about things that I really think about. Yeah. But then I also laugh while I'm listening to it. At least a couple of times an episode, I laugh out loud. 
Typically. His advertisements in the Lone Survivor yes. episode <laughs> make me laugh a lot. Like, they're very funny. Um, we have a couple of other ones. You know, the stuff where he's talking about, you know, the way that they shoot the bombers in Strategic Air Command. There's a lot of examples. He also does this thing at the beginning of the show sometimes, if you listen, where I'm like, tell our listeners what this, uh, in a nutshell, what's this about? And he would give you the exact opposite read, <laughs> but it is still actually right. So <laughs> it's like the bridge is this tragedy about these teenage kids that encounter an American armored division trying to defend a bridge and the whole point of the movie is like how stupid is war and how stupid are these kids and his synopsis at the beginning is like this movie is about these young soldiers who valiantly defend their hometown from the American military it's like <laughs> nope <laughs> I mean yes but nope <laughs> like, Kate is one of the funniest people I've ever met and doing the alien movie project with her was such a joy because she has such a, again, a very acute critical sense of humor, but a very contagious sense of humor. And it's a big part of this. It's got to be enjoyable. It's got to be entertaining. Charles is great for that. I remember her coming up with frat aliens from, uh, (laughs) from signs. Most of the funny things from alien movie project come from Kate and the concept of frat (laughs) aliens has legs. I mean, I know that it is Aqua Teen Hunger Force but she applies it to everything our episode (laughs) on signs where the kid sees an alien on the roof of the barn he's like there's an alien outside can i get a drink of water we're like oh don't worry it's just some kid you know doing a keg stand on top of a barn for a dare (laughs) (laughs) yeah they're just running around naked down here they don't know what they're doing frat aliens that's what's going on It's basically a dare. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on, Aaron. Uh, It was really fun. I wish we had more time, but yeah, we'll do it again. One last time, please listen to The Real War Project. It's really good. They're all up on Spotify or Amazon or however the hell you listen to it. So thanks again, Aaron. Thanks again, Biggs. Appreciate you. We got Carl here. Hey there. So we watched Vox Machina. So I saw all three episodes. You saw the first two. Yeah, which is like a self-contained story. I'm getting the impression from watching the first three that they have little two, three episode arcs, I think, yeah. for every story. That makes sense. Which I guess for people not in the know, the, the Critical Role podcast kind of popular and it's i mean are they comedians or are they just it seems like they work in the industry somehow but basically they all do a D campaign and there's a lot of jokes and stuff involved with that and the crazy stuff you would normally hear in in a D session if you actually play and they kind of turn that into podcasts and then i guess at some point they turned that into some kind of live show for youtube or something and hmm. now they're turning it into into an animated show. What really stuck out to me watching this is that it definitely works as a fantasy show and it just has those little tiny things in it that you would hear in a D&D campaign. Like, for example, the bard absolutely feels like somebody playing D&D to me. The other ones, they do a good job of kind of presenting them as your stereotypical archetypes, right? For D&D. But like the bard is exactly like a player behind the table, just like singing ridiculous songs all the time and doing it for no good reason sometime. And he's got a colorful jock strap and things like that. It's just like absolutely ridiculous. The bard is horny. For me, it was kind of a mixed bag. On one hand, it's like a very accurate presentation, I suppose, of what it's like to play D&D with a really good group. But also, if you are a person that lives, breathes, and eats fantasy, this will just be nothing but cliches. Yeah. Basically from beginning to end. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. It's executed very well. 
it doesn't seem very original to me, but that's just because I've been inundated with this sort of thing my entire life. Same. Knowing that it's basically an adaptation of a live, I'm guessing D&D, but it might be Pathfinder or whatever. They all use similar systems anymore now that the D20 system is open source and has been for quite some time. This reminds me of a different D&D-based comic strip that I'm a big fan of that has a loyal following but is not very widely known. It's called The Order of the Stick. And it is one of the smartest and cleverest like D&D sort of parody stories, I suppose. One thing that I really like about that particular comic is that the characters act as though the things that are just part of the rules system in D&D are just part of their natural world. So they like refer to different spells as like a level eight spell or a level six spell. And they'll say things like, oh, I can't cast that spell anymore today. I used up all my spell slots, which is like. Something we just is we use as convenience for a game mechanic. Yeah. But it's not something that most people are saying in world. And also not something you would expect from, say, a Lord of the Rings style thing. You don't right. e- you don't expect Gandalf to talk about how, well, I'm about to cast a resurrection or like, spell. So. This monster's got damage reduction five, or this you know, <laughs> I need to be level. We can't face this as creature rating nine. Kill something, they'll be like, ooh, I just gained a level, you know, or they'll yeah. be like, only lousy 5 XP from killing this thing, you know, like they make comments on the game mechanics in world. And it's really funny. The thing that I love about their bard is that he's pretty useless in the small term, like in the short term, because he's got his head up in the clouds and he's not really thinking about what's in front of him. He's thinking about what's happening at in the bigger picture of like the story. So he's, he's basically out bad. Well, when, <laughs> when you're in the thick of it, he's useless. Right. But he understands story structure. So he is able to identify things that most characters wouldn't like. He would say, oh, this guy's about to betray us because that's a classic third act thing that they do. Or like, "Ooh, we have exactly this much time to get over here because the bad guy's speech is going to take this long. And oh, man, it's so good. It's so friggin good because there's also just like he delves into the 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 villains and all these different worlds. His world building is is fantastic. Very cheap animation. Like it kind of looks like uh, not animation, even just the art style is in the vein of like, uh, what is that? Cyanide and Happiness, which is another webcomic. It's like slightly more complex than stick figures. Okay. Like your body is a rectangle and you have stick arms and stick legs and then your head is a circle. Yeah. And then there's details added to make the characters look different, but it's a very simplistic art style. And uh, I would even watch a cartoon version of that. That, that looked like that. They wouldn't need to update the artwork at all. They could just make it look stupid like that and it would still be amazing because it's all about the story. I, Getting back to Vox Machina, it seems like it's less about story and more about character. Yeah. And agreed. that's where I think this show really shines is like, yes, the barbarian is playing a very generic, kind of dumb, always killing barbarian cuts a guy's hand off can i keep the hand playing with it like he's a cat playing with the ball yarn looks like kratos from god of war i mean not very original but then the actual character himself has depth the halfling priest who seems to have a tenuous connection to her god (laughs) interesting character we've got a druid 
who is just constantly out of her element. Like she's afraid in every situation they're in. She can't hold her liquor, like all kinds of these things. Like but she's also always a little feels overhead. like, is she the most powerful character? She seems to be her when magic you're watching is it, like she seems powerful. to be, but she's like super nervous about everything. I feel like her arc is going to be finding her empowerment. I gotta you know say, I mean? watching this, it feels like and I don't know, like I don't even know how many episodes there are, but it feels like they're gonna do an arc for every character, I'm guessing. Yeah. And I I think that's a very it it, it feels very D D in that it's generic settings, like you said. Yeah. You know, it's it's generic characters for the most part. It's how they flavor those characters that sets this apart. And it's not yes, a big for sure. It's not setting it apart a lot. But I do think if you play D&D, you're going to get a little more out of the show because you're going to watch it and you're going to be like, that's like that guy in the group that yeah, I play with. You know what for I mean? Sure. Yeah, yeah, because also the characters have varying degrees of seriousness, but every single character has moments where they lose all pretense of seriousness because it was like a real person playing a character originally that was like reacting like a person would and not like their character. Would. Right. And there's also an element of this where when you watch it, there are archetypes in the show. But if you play D&D, you're going to know all the archetypes. If you don't know D&D, there's archetypes that you may have never seen before. For example, the cleric, right? This is how we think of a cleric in D&D. But clerics aren't really a thing in fantasy outside of some novels, right? Like when you think about up on the big screen, we don't really see clerics. And there's probably a reason for that. I'm guessing it's to not deal with a big Christian backlash or something. I, I would guess. Like, that's probably why we don't see that archetype really show up. But it's an absolute archetype for D&D. Like, the elven druid. Total archetype in D&D. Outside of D&D, I don't think people think about druids in that way. You know, we don't think about people slinging spells who are at one with nature or whatever. Right. Like, and I think we should expand it from D&D to basically, like, fantasy gaming. Yes, because you're right. Yeah. You don't have to have played D&D to recognize these characters. If you've played Warcraft, World of Warcraft. This is all something that if you're a fan of fantasy, any fantasy, you've seen a lot of these things. Yeah. In the first two episodes, they're hunting a monster. They don't know what it is. They figure out it's a dragon. How long did it take you to figure out the whole thing with the dragon? I'll, I'll try not to spoil oh, it, but um, I literally figured it out. Immediately. At the beginning. Pretty much yeah. immediately. Yeah. And I told Amanda while I was watching it. She actually got into the show. She was kind of like, ah, I don't want to watch it. And then she sat down and watched it and she really enjoyed it. It was because it was like a cool fan fantasy story but she was like once you started calling out the members of our group onto the party she <laughs> it was made like, it even more fun yeah she was or, like yeah i yeah. could kind of see that so i th i think where she normally would have probably watched it but not watched it again now she's in like yeah. that element was fun for her basically like the moment that the girl had the headache in the castle i was like one of these people is the dragon and it's definitely not the guy that looks like the evil dragon <laughs> yeah i i did the quick okay Fucking spoiler. Whatever. It's hardly a plot anyway. Yeah. But uh, it don't matter. So I'm sitting there watching it and I did this immediate calculation because this this is not breaking the wheel in storytelling. I, I don't know how many different ways we can say that. Right. But you, like, you know exactly there's the where evil it's dark elf, uh, evil looking dark elf guy. Mm -hmm. he, he's the one that they're he's pointing got, the big arrow at that's like dragon, dragon, dragon. Yeah. The first thing is like she senses it. And so they're saying like that they must have been in contact with the dragon. And that but I'm bringing, my D &D, I'm bringing my D&D knowledge to it. We're like, 
blue dragons, they can polymorph into bipedal creatures. So I'm just like, one of them is a dragon immediately. Yep. And then I look around and I'm like, it would be super obvious that it's the drow guy yep. because he's got blue tinted skin, which means it's the only other guy doing any talking who's not the king because the king has nothing to gain from this. Right. So it's clearly the army guy. And like, then when you see him in his tent and he like goes in his tent and then the army gets disappeared, I was just like, yep. That's, That's when I knew who, that it was him. Yeah. Up until That's when that I knew, point, but I figured up until that, that point, I had it pinned between the blonde lady and him. I didn't think it was the dwarf because of the way the dwarf was behaving, but I thought it could have been her. But then he was like clearly the most obvious. And they even gave away that the transformation thing because the they were tracking not human footprints and then the tracks literally turn into right. human tracks yeah. and they miss so that because they're not. <laughs> if you didn't know that before, you like, yeah. you can totally pick up They on gave it. you all the clues yeah. that you needed. And so I it's think competent storytelling. It's interesting too because those are the kind of clues I feel like they would put out for a young adult audience, like a young Justice League ages, maybe 10 to 14. But the violence in this show easily makes this for 17 and up. Yeah, if we're being real here, I guarantee if you were to secretly see what they're aiming at for this show, it's probably like 12-year-olds and up. We haven't seen full frontal nudity, but we have seen balls yep. and breasts. But that's the thing is they're going to have all of this stuff in there. But I think they're secretly hoping that like kids are watching it. I too. liked the wear minotaur bartender. That was a good, uh, that was an interesting, <laughs> uh, so weird. interesting con character concept. Uh, artwork is phenomenal. Uh, it's got an anime style to it, which uh, is a little bit distracting just because some of the characters are like cutesy and then other characters are a bit a bit over sexualized. Like yeah. did the the twin like there's two characters that are twins. They're like elf twins or half elf twins or whatever. And one's like they're both rangers or one's a rogue, one's a ranger. One's in the shadows with daggers and the other one shoots bow and has a bear as a companion, animal companion. And the female, like the, the sister of the twins, she's like pretty over-sexualized, which is a classic D&D trope. Yeah. So it fits. You know what the art style looks like to me? It looks like Elf Quest if they all had normal size eyes. Nah, it's more like westernized anime to me, like yeah, Avatar that's what I'm Last saying. Airbender. Yeah. Elf Quest is not anime in any way. It's manga like, inspired with its art. Okay, so like the, the and it's American. So the uh, <laughs> so the the high elf they look kind of anime ish. The slender ones, like the bird people ones, elves, but a little short, squat, little wolf riders. They don't remind me of anime characters at all. Like they look very much like they are Western. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like you literally led this by anime done in Western style. Like I think that's what we see is like you just round out everything. Thing, like <clears throat> I, I mean, maybe they were in maybe Wendy Piney, Piney, Peeny. I don't know how to pronounce. I honestly don't know how to say her name. I've just read it a lot. Yeah, <laughs> Richard and Wendy. I, I don't know what their influences were, but I would be surprised to hear that they were influenced directly by manga. She is a giant nerd. Uh, well, yeah, I, I watched I watched this documentary that was talking about I feel like the history of comic book conventions, and she originally got famous and only with this small subset of people because back in the '60s and early '70s, she would show up to Comic Con. She was known as queen of the cosplay and she would do these really intricate things she would work on a lot but she would meet all these artists and writers and then started asking them questions and kind of started to build it up in her head and kind of figured out okay this is 
how I do a, a book and then just like does this beloved okay, comic so book for decades. It looks like she was, according to her Wikipedia, she took artistic inspiration from Victorian illustrators such as Arthur Rackham and Edmund Dulac, designers such as Walt Disney, Doug Wildey, and Erte, as well as comic book greats such as Jack Kirby and Japanese manga artist Osamu Tezuka. So it seems like different types of creatures are inspired by different people, like I could uh, definitely see the Disney in there. When I, you I was it. about like, to say, yeah. like the Wolf Riders, very Disney with their big eyes, yep. their big expressive eyes. The high ones are very manga inspired. The dwarves, though, are like they knobbly feel Jack and, Kirby. Yeah, the, like they feel like the Eternals, kind of like the Jack Kirby Eternals. I mean, so like the deviants and shit. You got me the first volume omnibus of Elf oh, yeah, Quest right. for yeah. Christmas or my birthday or one of those. Two. I got it last summer. Oh, while you were I, on I was, tr- while you were on and, it was uh, for. Watching my house. <laughs> it is a fantastic book. The only downside to this particular version is that it's not in color. And I think it's edited because I got to say, when I was a kid, I part of my sexual awakening as a kid was reading oh, ElfQuest because they had sex. Yeah. There was, it was a horny book. Yeah. And I don't think I've seen a single shred of nudity yet. And I'm like a third of the way through the book. It's coming. They bring it in in a couple of books because you have to have like Cutter and Leah. Really, Lita. yeah, Lita really getting together. Like, no, it, it takes a while to no, no, to go like, down that I'm road. they've already got their kids. I'm oh, at the fuck. I'm past yeah, the they point where their kids are born. They have, I, I'm sorry, I had no, no idea. I mean, I the color thing did occur to me. They did not have any that were in color. I think However, you have to buy the individual volumes for the color versions because also I remember the individual books that I would check out from the fucking library mm-hmm. were oversized books. Yes. And that was how the first graphic novels I ever read were ElfQuest books. And they I were in, big. Yeah. And they were I found out, I did find out though, they were originally not in color. They went back Ooh, and they and paid colorized. somebody to colorize those. So it wasn't even like intentional in the, the artwork it didn't hmm. happen until well like, that the means 80s. that i was gonna say maybe it was the color that was jack kirby inspired but that can't be true because i mean it might be but it would be somebody <laughs> else's deal yeah <laughs> and ultimately i'm sure she said yes or no like elf quest elf quest was kind of all over that's, the map so that's in terms of companies that's my review of the legend of vox machina yeah read elf quest <laughs> yeah absolutely if you like fantasy give it a watch but read elf quest of course everybody's making the joke it was a Mandalorian episode, right? Seeing as how the Mandalorian was in the whole episode. Yeah, and Boba Fett was not. <laughs> okay, I have a new theory about the Disney uh, Star Wars shows, which is that whoever's like storyboarding them is obsessed with those reality TV shows where they make stuff because they make so much shit in these episodes. They're like, let's make a Jaffa stick. Let's make some armor for Grogu. Let's make like another thing. Like they're just constantly at a forge doing montages. And then he goes and repairs a spaceship and there's a montage of him repairing a spaceship. And I'm like, they just love doing these like how to, they're like how to build a speeder episode. <laughs> how to forge a Jaffa stick episode. Man, it's, that poor it's, Falcon it's really Crest, by the way, because like his first ship. It gets pretty fucked up, right? And he winds up repairing it with that alien. And then later it gets completely disassembled, like down to the bolts. And so over time has to put it back together again. And now it's just like obliterated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a good episode. Uh, it was like 
shockingly violent at the beginning to the point where I was like, is this the same Mandalorian? Why is he being like, why do you have to cut that dude in half, man? Like that seemed bloodthirsty almost for a character that I thought was like, like, sure, violent and because it's his job and capable, but like the brutality of it seemed unnecessary. Yes. And I think it's a plot point and he's angry because he had to give up Grogu and he misses his buddy. Yep. That's That's exactly what it is. Interesting. See, no, I liked it. And I think that's Uh, why he's having problems with the dark saber is because he is conflicted. He actually wants to be with Grogu and to have the dark saber means you're supposed to rule Mandalore. Right. Or at least he's told that and he believes that. No, no. Dark saber thing. That is a big thing in the Filoni cartoons. Like this goes back to. If you're not actively trying um, to lead the Mandalorians, the dark saber tries. They didn't get into that. Is the dark saber sentient? (laughs) I think so. Partially. Because the the dark saber is not happy with Sabine Wren when she gets the the dark saber. She's supposed to rule Mandalore and that is not what she wants to do. And so she has all kinds of problems with that sword as well and she basically got the sword because i'm trying to remember what it was like she found it or something but she did not win it in combat and so it kicked off apparently all of this stuff like who knows the lady who's in charge of that mandalorian sect that mando is in seems a little nuts like that they seem honestly a, a little like high religious like when extremist. when that person when whatever their name is said oh we're gonna melt this spear down because this is a you don't need this weapon i was like waiting for her to be like all right, now that this thing's gone, kill you. <laughs> like, shoot you. Because, <laughs> oh, I just took away the thing you could use to beat us. I was waiting for him to just take his helmet off right then and there when she said, you're no longer a fucking Mandalorian. I was wondering which direction they'd go with that because he clearly had to make a decision in the last season, which is like, am I going to keep going with the ways of the Knights of the Watcher or, or whatever they call them now? It was Death Watch or something in the Clone War cartoons. It seemed like, are you going to continue Continue down this path with these like weird extremists or are you going to actually like look out for the greater good or are you going to take care of yourself and Grogu and it seemed like he was like none of the above like I'm going to still believe it and I'm going to pine after Grogu and and I imagine he doesn't have a problem with Bo-Katan right now. Like he's probably going to wind up back with her at some point. So it's yeah. kind of interesting. He feels like he's at a crossroads, but he's definitely angry. And I think he's reverted back. All right. I'm going to use an example here. I live in Montana. When you have friends that are, I'm going to say 18 to 22, I'm going to say like 80% of your friends are going to get married at some point or have a kid. And then I've watched all of these friends like go through this thing where they got more responsible and more responsible. And then because they got married when they were very young, they wound up getting divorced. And then they'd revert back to exactly how they were before they got married, which was like 18 years old. And I think that's kind of what's happening with the Mandalorian here. He was this bounty hunter, right? I'll bring you in warm or I'll bring you cold all of that kind of stuff he didn't take any shit he killed a lot of people like at the beginning of the first season and he softens while he's watching Grogu and now he's reverted back to exactly what he was or even is overcompensating in his backslide and I think that's there too as well he backslid like further back than and you know honestly when I look at all of the uh, the characters in all of the Star Wars the Jedi specifically that whole bit about Jedi's forgo all attachments that's stupid like and i'm not even saying that's not canon or that's not accurate i'm saying that's fucking stupid i think it's presented as 
not being smart the way that they do it because they kind yeah. of they kind of traumatize well, the kids and they paint in the like I they're trying let's just to get do... past it. I'm not a fan of the prequels, but like what they were trying to do with the Jedi Order is show like they're kind of extremists well, and they have a lot of things that don't make sense. So I always thought that like Jedi, the concept of Jedi was based in like on like Zen. But if you were doing that, they would just all just be meditating off in the fucking woods somewhere and ignoring everything. Yeah. They wouldn't get involved in politics or fucking try to help planets. And that's part of their good. downfall like, too, right? They, like you, they have this organized religion wanna, and all this And if this you want to be like an honorable like force of good in the universe, feel like caring about others is a fucking prerequisite for that. You know well, what I mean? And if we're going to stay within <laughs> the, the Disney canon, I would like to give an example really quick because like we all, we all know the, the example that they're often talking about, which is like Darth Vader, right? Like Anakin has these attachments. He doesn't let them go. And as a result, he winds up turning into Darth Vader. But in the Clone Wars, they also have a thing where Obi-Wan has this woman that he's absolutely in love with. And he... He doesn't pursue the relationship as far as it could go because he's a Jedi and he knows that he can't do that. But like they're probably fucking and they give like a lot of hints that like there's still a relationship going, but it's on the down low. Nothing happens to Obi-Wan in that regard. And I think it's one of those things that like it's like any dogma in a church. You have a lot of people that say it on their lips and maybe even believe it, but then they still do the other thing. Or they fucking go another way and do something 10 times more awesome awful so that Hello, would be darth catholic vader right priests that would be darth vader in, in the star wars catholic priests can't get married so what do they do they molest little boys anakin can't be in love with padme so what does he do he murders a bunch of fucking fat younglings and he still has a relationship with padme <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not a perfect he kind of does whatever the fuck he wants <laughs> it's not a perfect but also like clearly obi-wan has attachments to luke because he fucking settles down on the same planet nearby and yeah. keeps an eye on him for his entire childhood makes sure he's safe you know he's watching out for him and it's also just unrealistic in a universal sense that you would be more effective by cutting away fighting for something you care about is going to be i believe is a more powerful motivating tool than fighting for nothing yeah well okay so <laughs> you know what i mean i think there's two things going on here. that's my boss's One... catchphrase you know what i mean <laughs> One is that you have the leader of the Mandalorians who is saying that to Din, right? Like she is saying the Jedi's believe in no attachments. Yep. Okay. She's trying to so, get him to sever his yep. connection to Grogu. Yep. That's what she's doing. So that's so she one. could be straight up just lying to him. She doesn't. I mean, know that the is Jedi. that is that is the Jedi <clears throat> thing. This... But I think she's using information to manipulate him. The second thing is like, how does Luke feel about this? Because we don't really know. Because like Luke is. Really restarting everything and like he had an attachment to his father and let his father know over and over again that like in the end i'm doing this for you like i'm turning myself in for you i know there's a good person and they're like he develops an attachment to his father who's this horrible person and it saves him it saves so, everybody like, yeah so it literally it, saves everybody that's not empire <laughs> right so are we sure that luke's going down not only that he's training his nephew 30 years later Right. Well, you know, as Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn might say, like, it's really all a matter of perception. Who's the good guy and who's the villain? You know, like mm -hmm. if you're just a lowly grunt working on level six A of the fucking 
mess hall section of the Death Star. You're not necessarily an evil person. You're right? just you got you're no- just serving sloppy joes to stormtroopers to make a to earn a living because you need to feed your family back home. Is this the clerk's you know? roofing argument? Like they had no personal politics. It's, I mean, <laughs> we really like to treat these big organizations like they are individuals. We treat corporations like individuals. We treat governments like individuals. The government did this to me. No, no, the government didn't do that to you. Like individuals within the government made decisions based on rules, based on your actions. And that's why this is happening to you. And so to blame an entire thing for the actions of a few people. I mean, once a big thing like the Empire or the Third Reich get rolling, it's fucking one person's not going to stop it. They're just going to get crushed underneath. And at a certain point, self-preservation takes over and human beings are going to be human beings and they're going to choose to like save themselves when they're faced with certain death. (laughs) You know, like, hey, you shoot that prisoner or we'll shoot you. They're going to shoot the prisoner, you know, and it's not good and it's probably going to haunt them for the rest of their life if they're a moral person. But they're still going to make that decision because in the moment, self-preservation is a powerful motivator. Right. So I don't think that the entire everyone in the empire is responsible. I mean, you've even we've even seen people switch sides because they're and be like, hey, we were fucking kidnapped as children and raised in this. You know, the modern stormtroopers of the the new trilogy or or even clones. Clones don't really have a choice. That's why there's one group of clones that are did until they didn't, which sucks. Like the bad batch is. So those are like flawed clones, right? So well, they, they have personality. Essentially, <laughs> that's what I I didn't watch the show. So okay, I'll, I'll give I'll give away like kind of the premise of it, which is like there are all these clones that were introduced earlier. I think in the Clone Wars, the DNA strands from Jango Fett, which are like all the clones are clones of Jango Fett. They were starting to run out of material for the DNA strands, and so like they basically the last thing that they did with the material that they had was they like experimented experimented with it to like make super soldiers out of the clones and so they were there and they all had beacons in their head but it like unquestionably took over all the clones who had it except for the bad batch most of them it was like taking longer or it was like receded so like one of them immediately flips and it works on him another one it takes a while before it flips and then a third one it was like working lightly so you would still having a hard time but like wasn't totally there but and then the like other flawed. ones were seemed unaffected but it's because they were there were different makeup they're the imperfect i wouldn't say clones. like flawed because they were like intentionally made they're like super soldiers for clones basically. they don't have bad side there's not no negative side effects no no aside from the thing not working right they're supposed to be famous I mean, with the clone army for like they've never lost a mission ever oh, they're not they're bad guys then no they're good guys they don't flip with order 66 and the bad batch takes place right when order 66 oh right comes order in. 66 turns the clone army from good to bad and but that, they don't flip too bad yes and which th- i would argue from the the empire side does make them flawed yes yes for it's in terms of palpatine's ma- from the audience's perspective they're not flawed yes but we're supposed i think we are supposed to see them as flawed initially from the empire's perspective and then very quickly be like they're not flawed they're better than uh something else that's interesting with 
the Clone Wars, they did a really good job of humanizing the clones because they establish it one or two episodes in. They're all individuals still, even though they look alike. And so they find ways to stick out and they all have different desires and different wants. Like some of them desert. Some of them like rise up in the ranks and become heroes. Some of them have a tragic downfall and honestly like side with the Empire, even when they don't have the beacon in their head. They have different personalities. And so I thought they did a good job in the Clone Wars of being like these aren't all cut and paste the same guy you know and they'll do stuff where they like wear certain war makeup a certain way or have a different haircut and that's even them trying to differentiate each other with themselves they want to be individuals even though they're clones and they're fine with being clones but it's like you know like we are our own person and so it's so fucking devastating when you realize like order 66 goes in and then they all just lose all will all agency they just they have no control over their decisions anymore and that's what they're really really diving into in the bad batch is like these guys were their brothers man like they had this like very very tight connection with everybody and then all of a sudden like the world just goes upside down you've got a different government and stop installed with an autocrat right and then like all the people that were fighting beside you suddenly like won't even consider you anymore like they're just going after you to kill you because they're under complete control it's pretty sad like when they really boil it down like Filoni's been doing a pretty good job with that yeah Bad Batch seems like uh it is the latest um offspring of like the seven samurai is that because they I feel like they're kind of I feel and I do kind of feel like they're all ultimately kind of doomed you know that's the thing we don't know what happens to them it's hard to picture that this is going to go well at the end because of the time they're going to go out in a blaze of glory but it's going to be a they're going to go out yeah like right now the universe is basically against them the rebel alliance hasn't even started yet won't start for like another five years at least because we've seen the beginnings of that in rebels so like that's like 10 10 15 years earlier or something so it's like or from rebels it's like 10 years earlier so it's 10 years before there's even like an organized descent you know the vibe that I always got from Bad Batch was it reminded me of the uh, Halo game Reach, Halo Reach, which is a prequel to the Halo series. Master Chief in the original Halo is like the last soldier of his kind remaining, I think. And Halo Reach is a prequel and it's got like a bunch of them. And the final level of the game is literally like you fighting off an invading horde of monsters. And the level literally doesn't stop until you die. Because that's how the story has to end is with all of the characters that you met and got to know over the course of this one game all are dead at the end. So I never really played the single player mode of it. I've mostly just played multiplayer with my roommates at the time because the single player mode was like, what's the point? You know, I'm just going to play as these characters for them to die. What a waste of time. It's not the same as like Red Dead Redemption where you die at the end of Red Dead Redemption, (laughs) but it's like really good storytelling. In both of them, you also pick up as another character afterwards too. And the story gets actual closure at the end. Yeah. Uh, This story never What's interesting with the Bad Batch is like, we actually don't know what's going to happen to them. It's very possible they can kick around and survive, but I don't know. Like, I I wouldn't be shocked if Filoni... Well, I also just like, I don't know much about clones in star wars but most of the time clones have like a time limit on their lifespan oh not in star wars i don't think so so they they have a regular lifespan for example that still means that they are gonna live forever we know that rex is still around like he is 
probably the clone that's featured the most in the Clone Wars, and he's like big friends with Ahsoka and new Anakin and all this. Like he so we was might even in charge see them of Clone in the Armory. Ahsoka. Series. I would not be shocked if we saw the guy who plays Boba Fett playing Rex at some point, which means he'd have a big white beard. Probably. Hmm. I don't know if this character is still alive by the Mandalorian, but he's definitely still alive. I believe by the time of like Return of the Jedi. So like we could see him because he got the beacon out of his head. Like one of his partners was like basically started getting all these headaches and stuff. And it was because the chip was starting to to kick in before it was supposed to kick in. And so a very limited amount of people, like when they got that out of his head, saw what was going on. And so they like they basically all immediately got the chips out of their head. Rex was not one, but eventually they got it out. Right. It's kind of interesting, dude. The Clone Wars like has some fun stuff. Like for after that happens, fucking Yoda and uh, Mace Windu. I don't care. Can I just tell you this nope. one thing? No, no, no. Nope. Because this nope. ties, don't want to hear it. I promise blah, 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 this ties blah, 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 blah. in. This ties in with what we were leading. You know off what I think? In though, this direction, Boba like Fett. Yoda and Mace Windu knew. <laughs> they knew about these <laughs> chips, and they didn't fucking say anything. Assholes. They didn't say anything. Dude, because they thought they could like figure this out and outthink it but it was like this hubris that they had dude and they used the jedi order arrogant yeah uh I feel like, honestly, if they really do lean into more of the clone-related stuff in live action, that fucking guy, Timura. Yeah, I don't know how to whatever say his name. Is, <laughs> the guy that plays Boba Fett, man, he is like, that was some clever thinking, taking this role. Be like, oh, yeah, I can be in all these shows as different people, and then all <laughs> I got to do is look like me. <laughs> He's the face of the clones, so he could play every clone in every show. <laughs> like, yeah. It feels like that would give me job security. <laughs> you know, I would have job security if I was like, oh, yeah, uh, you need a clone in Obi-Wan? I'll just join that show. Oh, Ahsoka needs a clone? I'll be in that show. <laughs> well, and we know the First Order has cloning machines because it was in one of the books I read, but they don't turn them on because they feel like they're better off training people to be stormtroopers who, like, want to be stormtroopers and just cloning a bunch of people. So, like, I find that interesting, too. Cloning's still around. But we've only really seen it employed on like what two people at this point? Boba Fett and the Emperor, uh, Jango Fett and, and Jango yeah, Fett and yeah, the Emperor and the yeah, Emperor. Yeah. There is a comic book story uh, I haven't actually read, but I watched a caravan of garbage on it. I think uh, that's those Weekly Planet Australian boys. Yeah, and uh, in the story, Boba Fett gets put on a job, a bounty, and then when he gets there, the bounty is another clone and. So he kills him, but then that clone has like settled down and gotten married and had a kid. Kid sees a guy that looks exactly like his dad shoot his dad. (laughs) And then like later on, that kid grows up and the two of them wind up in an on an adventure together and it's actually a pretty fucking cool story yeah i think i might know the character that that's based off of too because there's this one clone that deserted and he deserted before any of the the first order or like before well, I the think empire this comic book is older than any of the order 66 stories like 
I think it's an older story. But it would have to be after the prequels, though, right? Because people didn't know. I about think it was Boba after Fett the. Pre- I think yeah. it was like in the immediate aftermath of the. So prequels. this is like Legends canon, is what you're saying? I believe okay. so. So like it is possible if it's in the era of the Clone Wars cartoons, which started before Disney bought it. I don't think this particular comic book is canon anymore. Right, but like that's where it's tricky. Is like Clone Wars was going for four, I think four years before Disney bought Star Wars. So like this would have been one of the early seasons there's this one character who like deserts they run across him and they're about to like put him in prison and like bring him back and then they realize like he just wants to live you know yeah he wants a peaceful life and so they decide to kind of overlook it yeah tim yura morrison yeah he is 62 years old yeah (laughs) they're gonna work his ass off his 62 year old ass off man yeah no shit he looks great for his fucking age though i gotta tell you yeah he looks fucking great i want to see him in other things I'm sure he's in other things. I know he's in Attack of the Clones. <laughs> I said I wanted. Oh, he was fucking. He was fucking Aquaman's dad. Oh, was he? Yeah. Okay. In the live action, and he was the dad of Moana in Moana. He plays people's dads a lot. Yeah. Except in this one, where he plays Jango Fett's son. <laughs> And nobody's dad, except maybe a Balrog now. <laughs> He's kind of that Balrog's dad, which is fucking, by the way, that's so great. That, that thing's his pet, dude. I love it. Oh, like, the Rancor? I, Rancor, not Balrog. What Balrogs are from fucking Lord of the Rings. Yeah. I, <laughs> I went with you mentally, but then I realized. <laughs> yeah. What's the difference? Uh, Balrog's got a whip and wings. That's the only difference. They're both big, ugly things. Well, this is probably a good place to cut off, so take it easy. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Follow us on Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs, Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs, or email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safer Network was created by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Alex Small. A podcast about the narrative and effective politics of war movies and their productions, too. Charles Horgan and Aaron Donaldson bring you a brand new podcast, The Real War Project. Dip in and out of subjects with Lauren and Sarah's irreverent points of view with the hilarious podcast, Dippers. Catch up with the week's pop culture news as well as reviews of new movies and shows, not to mention the occasional interview with Carl, Brandon, and Biggs on Not Safe for Network. Wrestlers wrestle, but sometimes they make movies too. This podcast lets you know how they do. Listen to Eric and Connor in all three seasons of Movies with Wrestlers. One by one, Jeremiah and Biggs break down influential movies and some wretched ones too in the podcast you can't miss, A Cosmic Void.